Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2023, we're running our annual Radiothon, where we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy the podcast. Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here at midday every Saturday uh, on 3CR to defend and promote public education. And we're very lucky that we've got 3CR because nobody else would ever have us in the old days. I think people are starting to wake up as to just what state aid to private schools is doing to our education system in Australia, but... Um, there's a long way backwards to go to where we, we were uh, many years ago. But we've got an interesting program for you this afternoon. Our press release 982, State Aid to Private Schools is the Privatisation of educa- Australian Education by Stealth. And there's some very interesting figures that have been brought out by the opposition, the independent schools themselves. They're, they're skiting off but um, they tell their own story. Over to you, Kim. Thanks, Jean. Uh, Yeah, let's jump straight into it. On May 18, the Sydney Morning Herald printed an article by Christopher Harris and Lucy Carroll entitled Parents Opt for Religious Schools as Students' Enrolments Soar. The figures quoted in this article prove the point made by the dogs six decades ago that state aid to private religious schools meant a return to the old sectarian and class-based denominational system of the 19th century. These figures were released by the denominational lobby group Independent Schools Australia. Enrolments in private schools across Australia have grown by 35% over the past decade, fuelled by a surge in student numbers in Islamic and Christian schools. Independent enrolments increased to 688,638 last year, according to the official data released in a report by private school lobby group Independent Schools Australia. Islamic schools enrolment doubled to 46,000 between 2012 and 2022, while Christian schools grew by 50% to 82,000 over the same period. Enrolments in non-religious private schools also grew by 38% to 100,000 students. The total share of students attending private schools went from 4.1% in 1970 to 17.1% of pupils by last year. However, the independent Catholic schools were just one of two affiliations whose enrolments fell. Systemic Catholic schools, which charge low fees and are run by dioceses around the country, were not included in the report. Governments save an estimated $5.7 billion in funding due to the contribution from families and other private sources, the report said. The report is a self-serving one from a powerful lobby group, but the figures tell the story of privatisation of education in Australia and the fragmentation of our society by stealth. Perhaps the most interesting figure is the $5.7 billion so-called saving to the public purse of the private sector, 
Does this mean that for that figure, we could abolish educational fees and open these schools to the public? The comments on this article were of particular interest. These really are very interesting. You read the first one and I'll read the second one. Yeah. Cherub says state governments are abdicating their responsibility to educate all children by not building schools in growth areas and incentivizing, incentivizing construction of private schools in these areas. For equivalent SES, private schools perform worse than state schools. Australia's performance on all international indicators of student performance has dropped substantially since the increase in private schools. But Dingo Creek old boy says this, I invested in houses with the money I saved not sending my kids to publicly funded private schools. Now I am paying for my kids to go to university so they have no hex debt. Our public school experience has been real and wonderful. Thank you, public school teachers at Gisborne Secondary College, Victoria. Sensible man. What does Drive R22 say? Uh, perhaps we are lucky, but my sons thrive at their local primary public school. They get a great education, play sports in local clubs and have lots of friends in the neighbourhood. They are living their best life. My older son is in year six and he chose our local public high school for his next adventure. Most of his friends will be going there too. When we attended the school's open day, I was impressed with the quality of the leadership at the school, the values they promote, the variety of subjects taught and multitudes of sports they provide. The grounds were not fancy by any means, but well-maintained. Many of the classrooms have been completely refurbished and are well-equipped. I have no concerns about sending my son there. And Doofus says, and because almost all non-government schools are religious, what choice do they have given the government has given up on government schools and is letting them fail? Apart from the Steiner schools, I can't think of any non-religious private schools. These smaller religious schools are the cheapest alternative available. And, of course, that's what's happening. The government is actually paying money to put these schools up and they are not putting up public schools. So what happened to parental choice? Jack Brumby has a nice comment that ties it up. Please use the correct terminology, publicly funded private schools. Yep. Well, thank you very much, Kim. Uh, and when there isn't enough money for public education, then schools get closed when the enrolments go down, especially in the rural areas. And this is what's happened at a place called Elmhurst. The Elmhurst Primary School was a little school in the Pyrenees about an hour's drive northwest of Ballarat and 14 kilometres from the nearest primary school. But in March, it formally closed its doors because there hadn't been enough children there to get a teacher. Natalie Attard was on the primary, the primary school council when her daughter Sienna started prep in 2020 and she was only one of three students at the school. But the family had moved from Melbourne to nearby Glenpatrick for a tree change and they didn't know then that the school was on the verge of closing because everybody seemed to know, she said, excepting us. My husband, John, and I felt really silly after we tried so hard to keep the school open, and it really was an awful experience. But Sienna now attends the amphitheater primary school. They tried a, a Catholic school, but that wasn't to their liking. So she goes now 14 kilometres up the Pyrenees Highway where the enrolment sits at 14. 
and she says that the family is happy to have moved back to a rural school and to see their their little daughter thriving again. Rural schools, as we know, provide children with a different learning experience and much more opportunities, which are just not available in the mainstream schools. But the problem is that they are the glue in a small community. And if you close a school and everybody knows that the school is closed, then young families will not go to those settlements, unfortunately. There's also an art in the article. You've got a comment by Kathy McCullum, who says that the community of Barringup in central Victoria is still grieving the loss of their primary school, which was de-staffed in 2017 before it officially closed. And the nearest schools are in Maldon and Carisbrook, and they're 10 kilometres and 18 kilometres away. So this is actually what happens when the money is diverted into private schools, which are are not necessary and they uh, divert both the funds and the enrolments away from our public system and in the end everybody suffers because as we all know we're being told all the time the international stakes mean that Australia is going down in the tests that they give to our children but um, we thought that you'd be interested in that point of view. We'll have a bit of a break now and we'll come back with some more interesting news. 3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station radical and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2023. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason for screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 Well, I hope you're still listening to the dogs. We've got another very interesting uh, article which Dale is going to give us, a pandemic silver lining. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. I've got an article by Andrew Miller, Jenny Gore and Leanne Frey titled A Pandemic Silver Lining, How Kids in Some Disadvantaged Schools Improved Their Results During COVID. Students from schools in low-income communities did not suffer significant learning loss during the pandemic years of 2020 to 2021, but instead improved in certain areas of study. That's one key finding from our research published recently in the journal, The Australian Educational Researcher. 
In fact, we found students considered most at risk of learning loss during the pandemic actually achieved greater growth in mathematics and equivalent growth in reading in 2021 when compared with a similar group of students from 2019. Our results revealed one silver reveal one silver lining from the past three challenging years and underscore what's possible when programs aimed at helping the most disadvantaged students are well funded. Overall, however, we still have a long way to go to remove pervasive and structural inequities baked into Australia's school systems and to narrow achievement gaps. So the study involved data in, on year three and four academic results collected as part of a randomised controlled trial within 125 New South Wales public schools. From this data, we carried out two studies, one comparing student results in 2020 to 2019 and the second comparing 21 to, to 2019. In other words, one analysis compared student results from the first year of the pandemic with pre-pandemic kids. The other compared academic results of pre-pandemic kids with those who'd lived through consecutive years, which included remote learning. The groups of students for each year of study, 2019, 2020 and 21, were carefully matched so that they could be confident they were comparing like with like. When comparing 2020 and 2019 cohorts, they found no significant differences overall in maths or reading achievement. However, analysing these same data by school index of community socioeconomic advantage, the ICSIA value, uh, which um, is a measure of school level advantage that accounts for so school location, parent education and percentage of Indigenous students, it revealed worrying inequities. In this 2019-2020 comparison, which compared pre-pandemic students to those living through the first year, they found students in disadvantaged schools achieved less growth in maths. Those in mid-range schools had achieved slightly more. When Then, when the pandemic continued, we were able to also compare pre-pandemic kids, the 2019 group, with those who'd lived through both years, the 2021 group. This allowed to, them to measure the impact of consecutive years of disruptive learning. Uh, surprisingly, they found students from disadvantaged schools achieved three months additional growth in maths and equivalent growth in reading compared to their 2019 pre-pandemic peers. Meanwhile, students in mid-range and advantaged schools achieved about the same as their pre-pandemic peers. Early in the pandemic, teachers, parents, researchers and governments and the media were worried and speculated that students' uh, results would decline. As the research shows, major concerns about widespread, widespread diminishing academic achievement did not materialise, even where students did not achieve at the same rates as they did in pre-pandemic years, they still learned. In hindsight, the idea of learning loss or of students learning going backwards was likely a source of unnecessary worry for families. However, overseas results show Australia was an outlier. World Bank analysis of 35 empirical studies on the impact of COVID-19 on student learning concluded students around the world fell by roughly uh, one half years worth of learning. 
It also found students from disadvantaged contexts were more likely to be negatively affected. Researchers at Harvard University found remote and hybrid learning during the pandemic contributed to significantly widening achievement gaps for disadvantaged students. In this global context, the recent academic achievement of students in New South Wales studies are cause for real celebration. So what's behind these results? When the pandemic brought lockdowns and uncertainty, governments and education departments around Australia found hundreds of millions of dollars to put towards preventing students from falling behind. The New South Wales Department of Education's tutoring scheme, launched in 2021, may have contributed to the positive academic results that they found. The COVID intensive learning support program funded schools to employ more educators to deliver small group literacy and numeracy tuition to students identified as needing it most. The program has been extended to June 2023, but has been criticised for not being particularly well targeted. The, the widespread teacher shortage has also been a factor. Hard to staff schools in disadvantaged and rural and remote communities where arguably tutoring was needed most reported struggling to hire classroom teachers, let alone uh, additional educators for the tutoring program. It's also possible the key finding could be explained by the strict focus on literacy and numeracy in primary schools when students returned after periods of remote learning. However, this back-to-basics focus at the exclusion of sports, assemblies, excursions and other extracurricular activities that punctuate school life may also have negatively affected student and teacher well-being. The achievement gap between students from marginalised groups and their more disadvantaged peers looms large in the Australian education system. The students in the study from disadvantaged schools, while showing academic improvement in maths in 2021, still started and ended the year well behind their more advantaged peers. In fact, their achievement level at the end of 2021 was, all, was still below where students in advantaged schools began their school year. There are clear lessons to be learned from the pandemic and the, res and the research on its effects. For decades, funding models left marginalised students at real disadvantage. But when the pandemic hit, most governments were able to find significant funding for programs and initiatives usually actually targeted at those with the greatest need. Can such special funding be sustained sustained to stem ongoing inequalities in Australian schooling. David Gonski, appointed by the Gillard government in 2011 to review Australian schooling school funding models, certainly thought so. Uh, the research could not be more timely. Federal Education Minister Jason Clare recently announced an expert panel and ministerial reference group to advise on a new on a new national school reform agreement. This agreement sets out five-year initiatives and targets which are tied to funding and agreed between the federal government and states. It represents the best opportunity to finally get school funding right. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. 
Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Call the station on 03 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. Well, uh, we hope that you're still listening to the Dogs Program and we'd like to remind you that Radiothon is coming up. We would really appreciate it if even early, even now, you were to ring up 3CR and uh, donate to 3CR for the Dogs Program because uh, without 3CR, you wouldn't get the kind of information that the dogs give you. And it's the same with so many of our other programs. But... um, We're now going to go to Sorrel, who's going to tell us that the government's on notice because it will be held to its commitments. Over to you, Sorrel. Thanks, Jean. So the government is on notice. It will be held to its commitments. It was prescient that Minister Prue Carr should thank the Honorary Dr Jeff Gallup in her speech at our recent Principals Conference on the 5th of May. That moment when Federation asked that the Gallup report be conducted, that's a seminal moment in New South Wales history, Ms Carr told our principal members. She went on to say she was happy to acknowledge that it is our blueprint for addressing the crisis in the state's public education system. The moment was back on 20th of February three years ago when the Gallup inquiry was set in motion and became the foundation upon which we have built our industrial, political, legal, electoral and communication strategies aimed at achieving the crucial change needed to address the workload, wages and job insecurity issues that have beset the profession and led to the teacher shortage. With the acknowledgement finally that education is at crisis point, it was fitting that Federal Education Minister Jason Clare, himself just a year on the job, also addressed the Principals Conference. We all know that at the crux of many issues assailing our system, it is the underfunding of our public schools, which are courtesy of a decade of state and federal coalition governments, stuck at only 90% of the minimum level of funding considered necessary to give all students their best chance to succeed. At the conference, both ministers signed a pledge to commit to funding schools to 100% of the schooling resource standard, the SRS. That undertaking reads, we are committed to ensuring every New South Wales public school is on the path to reach 100% of their schooling resource standard, the fair funding level. 
With the former state and federal governments consigned to the lows of history, let's not forget who did the heavy lifting to achieve that. You, the members. Your community campaigning, lobbying of MPs and industrial action and unprecedented presence at about 240 polling booths in targeted electorates finally ended the coalition, ushering in a new era for our profession and public education. And you deserve the thanks, more than thanks. Members across the state have found some relief in the honesty of Minister Carr. It is a refreshing and necessary change from the recent past. The acknowledgement of the workforce crisis we face is a welcome departure from the contempt and disrespect of the previous government. To date, our relationship with the new government remains respectful, yet, as you'd expect, robust. It is a relationship we've entered with goodwill and one that we can trust we can build on. The success of the relationship will, of course, depend on the government delivering on its commitments to the profession. The government is on notice. It will be held to its commitments. It's time to commit to one of the most important nation-building campaigns of our lifetimes, ensuring a yes vote for the constitutionally enshrined voice to parliament. Federation is guided by its Aboriginal members and bound by our annual conference and council decisions to do its utmost to secure a positive outcome in the referendum. Annual conference of 2018 committed us to embrace the Uluru Statement from the heart and deliver on voice, treaty and truth. Together, alongside the broader union movement, we must do our utmost to attend to this unfinished business of due constitutional recognition and voice for our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. For if we don't, not only will we have missed an opportunity to continue on a nation-building journey, a journey of reconciliation, but also we will witness a disastrous repudiation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. It's time to fight for a voice for our First Nations peoples. Together, united unions for yes. Great ending to that article. Back over to you, Jean. Well, that was there from the New South Wales Teachers Federation, and uh, they were instrumental, of course, in changing the government and the Labor Party and in both Canberra and also in New South Wales are prepared to recognise that. Unfortunately, down here in Victoria, Mr Andrews isn't uh copying the people in New South Wales, and uh, the, the the last budget has got very little in it to really, really make uh, public education supporters happy. But uh, where do you go? I think we have to think about the Greens and a few of the other people, the Reason Party and others, and the dogs have always taken that view for a long, long time. The Lib Labs have long since uh, sold out the public education system. But thank you, Sorrel, and uh, we're now going to have um, Dale, who's going to tell us about the vested interests that thwart the school reforms in Australia. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. I've got an article by Glenn Fay here, Vested Interests Thwart School Reform. So the Albanese government has correctly identified the things that need to change in our classrooms and the test will be facing down unions, academics and state bureaucrats, apparently. So a year into Labor's administration, Education Minister Jason Clare has a unique opportunity to transform Australian education policy and practice, but success will depend on overcoming resistance from the sector's vested interests where others have failed. 
the Albanese government has not been shy in its approach to reforming industrial relations, energy markets, constitutional change and the Integrity Commission, among others. But education policy has comparatively been on the back burner. The Treasurer's recent budget speech dedicated no time to the investment in schooling and while there have been no unforced errors in the portfolio, there has also not yet been any significant policies. That's not because of a shortage of reform opportunities nor educational imperatives. The OECD's PISA has shown the decline in Australian student achievement is steeper and more consistent than in any other country other than Finland. And while new results from uh, the Progress in International Reading Literacy Study, or PEARLS, did not worsen over recent years, this is hardly a ringing endorsement for the system, given that the resources pumped into schooling in Australia are among the highest and fastest growing in the world. Reassuringly, the government has identified the right issues requiring its attention, namely the teacher workforce, teacher training and school reform agreements. In turn, the National Teacher Workforce Action Plan, Teacher Education Expert Panel and a specialist panel informing a better and fairer education system have been tasked with handing down advice to the government over the months ahead. But will the government have the courage and ambition to act on the reform advice? To date, Claire has certainly proven the capacity to be consultative and to build consensus, but it's unlikely that enacting change may require breaking rather than making consensus. Unfortunately, the Educational Establishment Echo Changer ha- Chamber has presided over the sector's challenges in the first place and will resist many policies aiming to ensure all children receive the best education possible. Claire could look to Labor's formidable legacy when last in office when it delivered the most consequential education policy achievements for decades, NAPLAN, MySchool and Gonski funding. These accomplishments were achieved despite significant opposition from vested interests in the sector. This determination will be needed again as genuine reforms will require being at odds with education unions, academics and state bureaucracies. Three necessary reforms. First, Claire must unambiguously endorse evidence-based teaching. It's hard to ignore that Labor education ministers across the country have been more reluctant than their coalition counterparts to embrace the growing movement towards science-informed teaching. Unions and academics have largely been hesitant or outright resistant on the issue. This is holding back the much-needed scaling up of highly effective explicit teaching. Around the world, education experts, advocates, parents and policymakers have rallied to become more science-informed. Claire can make his mark by putting our schools, school systems on the right side of educational history, but it won't be welcomed by academics and unions supposedly. Secondly, he will need to call out underperforming university-based teacher trainers. To improve classroom teaching practices ultimately requires starting at the source and universities have long proven unable or unwilling to align teacher training with current evidence. In recent years, reformers in the United States and UK have produced impressive and publicly transparent 
performance reporting of teacher training providers. Those failing to meet standards have been closed or defunded, either by the hand of the government or by the market. This is improving the sector in those countries, better informing consumers and employers and helping policymakers in optimising public investment. Clare's predecessor, Alan Tudge, warned universities he was willing to defund underperforming programs. Clare must show the same conviction if, almost inevitably, some remain reluctant to improve. And third, laggard states will need to be challenged to do better. The National School Reform Agreement's to be concluded later this year are an important opportunity for Claire to lead. If it were ever the case that federal education ministers enjoyed only a limited remit, it no longer is. Today, there's an appetite for national leadership on everything, including whether mobile phones belong in schools and intergovernmental coordination of complex challenges. Sometimes it also takes distance from directly delivering schooling to provide necessary clarity. But leadership demands being more than the cash cow for the states. Claire has implied he will impose improvement targets for states to work towards as a condition of federal funding. This is a reasonable step, but will surely face protest. On all fronts, the government may be forced to decide between genuine reform and the interests of some of its traditional supporters. One year into the term, will the government be able to unshackle itself from vested interests to enable it to deliver transformative policy reform? And that was from Glenn Fay. Yes, well, I think some of the unions he's talking about there would be the independent schools teachers unions. I think public school teachers unions will be more than happy to see some of the NSRAs changed and implementation of the Gonski measures. And it is interesting that he writes that the Gonski reforms were a formidable achievement on Labor's behalf when they virtually got dismantled and none of the Gonski schooling resource standards have been met. So some of Gonski's most basic aims haven't been met. It wasn't really an achievement because it was never implemented correctly. Anyway, this is uh, written by Glenn Fay. Anyway, back to you, Jean. Well, thank you so much, Dale. And now, of course, we've got our usual session and Jeff is going to take us overseas. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jean. And we're um, doing an article from The Guardian by Asha Lira-Small uh, from Friday the 5th of May. And it's about the conservative scholar who lit a match to the US rights education wars. This is a guy who... Um, by the name of Stanley Kurtz, who, who is underlying a lot of the legislation in America, which is trying to fight critical race theory being taught in schools, which is um, strange because any mention of race is being interpreted, interpreted as critical race theory. So the article goes, when two US senators, a Texican, Texas Republican and a Delaware Democrat, introduced a bill in June 2022 to expand grants for civics education, most observers saw it as something of an olive branch between the parties. But despite initial momentum, three now familiar letters stopped the bill in its tracks. CRT. Most, uh, most, a mostly unknown conservative scholar writing in the National Review claimed the bill would allow the Biden administration to push critical race theory, CRT, on every public school in the country, calling the Republican co-sponsors naive victims of a hidden leftist agenda. 
critical race theory, which posits that racism permeates American institutions, has become a right-wing shorthand for any classroom discussion of race. Senator John Corrin, Cornyn, who proposed the legislation and is the former GOP majority whip, dismissed, dismissed the allegations, writing on Twitter that the false hysterical claims are untrue and worthy of a Russian active measures campaign, not a serious discussion of our bill. But truthful or not, the criticism spread like wildfire. The National Review op-ed racked up thousands of interactions on social media. Far-right Breitbart News ran an article whose headline pulled word for word from the editorial and the Florida Governor Ron DeSantis issued a press release warning that the $1 billion of federal civics bill would award grants to indoctrinate students with ideologies like critical race theory. High-profile commentators urged their followers to call law lawmakers opposing what they described as Trojan, Trojan horse garbage sponsored by rhinos or Republicans in name only. The Senators' Civics Secures Democracy Act went no further. But how did this firestorm start? The story begin, begins years prior and revolves around Stanley Kurtz, the author of the op-ed that lit the match and a little-noticed power player shaping the right's recent offensives in the education culture wars. Through his writings, oh, though his writings are regularly shared by GOP heavy hitters, including Fox News analysts, groups like Parents Defending Education and sitting US senators, Kurtz has flown mostly under the radar. A 69-year-old former university instructor and longtime conservative commentator, Kurtz has spearheaded a quiet but influential campaign to cleanse classrooms of what he calls woke civics, a term that extends to any hands-on civics lessons entailing student contact with elected officials. He declined a phone interview, saying he preferred to comment by email. In written messages, the scholar explained that he believes hands-on civics projects tilt overwhelmingly to the left. Any sort of political protest or lobbying done by students is subject to undue pressure from the biases of teachers, peers and non-profits working with schools. Political protest and lobbying ought to be done by students outside of school hours, independently of any class projects or grades, said Kurtz. Neil McCluskey, director of the Libertarian Cato Institute's Centre for Educational Freedom, has documented more than 3,400 ideological battles in public schooling over issues like controversial books or sex education for more than a decade, and said he has yet to see compelling evidence that, that liberal bias in civics classes has become a widespread widespread problem. A 74 review of McCluskey's tracker revealed that only a handful of incidents concerned, concerned civics. The argument amounts to a fabricated boogeyman, uh, the University of South Carolina law professor Derek Black said. The idea that leftist teachers could create little warrior bands of students to go out and fight their political wars for them has become a captivating concern for some on the right, Black said. In 2021, Kurtz penned model legislation stipulating that students should be banned from receiving class credit for lobbying or advocacy at the local, state or federal level. At least eight bills proposed in five states pulled from the document, according to the Penn, to a Penn America report. The conservative Manhattan Institute included the legislation's anti-lobbying provisions in its own model bill presented at the American Legislative Exchange Council, an annual forum to swap right-wing lawmaking proposals. Linda Bennett, a recently retired GOP South Carolina state representative, introduced a 2021 bill by the same exact same name as Kurtz's Partisanship Out of Civics Act. 
No need to reinvent the wheel if somebody's got it right, she told the 74. Bennett insisted that her office had become flooded with young students coerced by their educators, demanding that she please support allowing teachers to teach critical race theory. But she could not name a specific school or teacher that had influenced students to take an activist stance. In Texas, a provision from Kurt's model bill found its way into the state's 2021 anti-CRT law and resulted in an unprecedented restriction on students' civic engagement. The legislation banned assignments involving direct communication between students and their federal, state or local lawmakers. In the two years since passage, Texas educators say they have been forced to abandon time-honoured assignments, such as having students attend a school board meeting or advocate for local causes like a stop sign at an intersection near campus. Sarai Payez, a recent high school graduate from a suburb outside Austin, said the new law was a step backwards. Students in her ninth grade civics class passed a 2018 city ordinance calling for youth representation in their local government, advocacy that would now be outlawed. There's no need to take away something that has affected a group of people in a positive way, she said. Kurtz and the right-wing lawmakers and advocates who have helped translate his policy agenda into practice are linked by more than just shared philosophy. They're also connected by money. Stanley Kurtz, a former university instructor and longtime conservative commentator, has spearheaded a quiet but influential campaign to cleanse classrooms of what he calls woke civics. His employer, the Ethics and Public Policy Centre, a conservative think tank dedicated to applying the Judeo-Christian moral tradition to Christian issues of public issue, public policy, has, dozen, has a dozen funders in common with the Manhattan Institute, tax filings reveal, including mega donors like Charles Koch Foundation, the Charles Koch Foundation. The Texas State Representative Steve Toth, co-sponsor of the 2021 legislation restricting civics assignments, also receives campaign funds from the Koch Foundation. Neither Toth or, nor the Ethics and Public Policy Center responded to requests for comment. Governor DeSantis in Florida also shares at least one donor, Fidelity Investments, in common with Kurt's think tank. The issues of interest to Kurtz have repeatedly found their way to DeSantis's bully pulpit. The governor recently doubled down on civics education rooted in patriotism and his rejection earlier this year of the College Board's AP African-American Studies curriculum came just a few months after Kurtz began writing critically about the issue. Kurtz named two authors specifically in his September article, Robin Kelly and Kimberly Crenshaw, who the Florida Department of Education later objected to. The Education Department Press Secretary, Cassie Palidis, uh, said Florida's concerns with the course were the result of a thorough review and its correspondence with the college board he had begun in early 2022. When asked whether officials referenced Kurtz's work during that process and if so, what role it played, Palidis did not address the, the question. As for Kurtz's model legislation, its influences continued to spread. In January, a district outside Colorado Springs voted to adopt a new social studies curriculum that bans awarding course credit for service learning or action civics. We are in it for the long haul, said David Randall, research director at the National Association of Scholars, which published Kurtz's model bill. Our mission is to inspire as many Americans as possible to join this work. So that's um, an update on the critical race theory and the... Uh, and in its and the culture wars, and it's it, um, it identifies the root of most of the legislation currently um, being considered there. 
So we're going to nip across the ditch now, as we do, to the UK. And there's an interesting article um, which appeared in Phys.org, which is a, um, a science uh, newsletter designed for science educators. This one comes from the University College London uh, from May 17th, 2023. And it says, Accelerated Christian education textbooks used in the UK schools deny human-caused climate change. And it goes on. One of the world's largest fundamental Christian education groups is teaching its students climate change, climate change denial as fact and still presents the theory of evolution as an absurd and discredited conspiracy theory, finds a report by the University College of London researchers. Accelerated Christian Education, ACE, ACE, is one of the world's biggest providers of creationist science materials considering, consisting of reading programs and a core curriculum for thousands of affiliated schools worldwide, including dozens across the UK and Europe. There are currently 11 schools in England and Northern Ireland officially affiliated, affiliated with ACE, although experts expect there to be many more as schools are, the schools are notorious, notoriously isolationist, conservative, and don't advertise themselves widely. In the report published in Cultural Studies of Science Education, researchers found that, it is, that its latest edition, which has been released to year groups from key stages one to three, gradually over the last few years, now claims to show evidence that human-caused climate change is not real and still presents evolution as a conspiracy theory. This is despite claims by the curriculum's developers that its materials allow students to make up their own minds about evolution. The addition of climate change denial as a proof point for creationism follows on from its previous editions that claimed the existence of a vapour canopy that surrounded the earth until it burst, causing Noah's flood. Although the most recent edition doesn't include this and the claim has largely been dropped by the group, space within the material previously has given over to the theory uh, that now covers climate change, specifically to deny a human link between rising temperatures and to re reassure students of God's plan in preparing a new heaven and earth with a better climate. Lead author, Dr. Jenna Scaramanga, um, who is the um, IOE UCL's Faculty of Education and Society, said, it is worrying that the most recent edition of this material not only still promotes creationism as a valid scientific theory, but adds climate change denial to its increasingly anti-science agenda. Students studying at ACE schools or using ACE materials move into mainstream further or higher education ill-equipped to study advanced science or to make informed judgments about scientific discoveries. Presenting creation, creationism and evolution in this way is a conspiracy, conspiracy theory, as the providers and teachers argue that mainstream scientists are colluding to promote false ideas. Teaching children in this way means they are more likely to easily accept and believe other conspiracy theories. The authors found through analysing the third and fourth editions of the material that younger primary elementary schools' children are not exposed to any ideas contrary to ACE's literal interpretation of the Bible until year nine, or the eighth grade in US, around the age of 13. Researchers say this is contrary to Ofsted education guidance, which stipulates that primary school children must be exposed to a broad, balanced science education. The fourth edition of ACE's material was first releases for the youngest, youngest age group, five to six-year-olds, in 2009, with subsequent grades following gradually. Material for 12 to 14-year-olds was released in 2016 and 2020, respectively. Overall, the only substantial difference between third and fourth editions were the two new arguments, which have both been widely discredited by scientists. One is the claim of tiny amounts of polonium found in granite rocks 
as evidence that the earth formed instantaneously, while the other is that traces of blood vessels and soft tissue found in some dinosaur fossils prove that they must have died comparatively recently, suggesting that Earth is a young planet. ACE has previously been criticised for relying on rote memorization over other learning styles and presenting misleading or distorted information. The curriculum delivered within ACE schools regularly includes creationism with non-science lessons and depicts those who believe in evolution as making an immoral choice. The material has also been previously criticised for supporting white supremacism and defending South African apartheid. In its first 20 years, ACE was involved in over 150 lawsuits, mostly related to accreditation with subsequent court cases. The company believes that Christian schools should not be regulated and schools using its curriculum have defended this belief through litigation. Dr Scaramanga added, questions needed to be asked about how these schools and those which rely heavily on ACE publications pass Ofsted checks when the curricula and materials clearly fail to provide a broad and balanced science education and fail in the requirement of teaching respect for different beliefs. Um, and that's the end of the article, but um, it does again, highlight the dangers of allowing private schools um, with various um, religious um, biases uh, to receive public funding um, when they clearly don't uh, ascribe to mainstream science uh, information and uh, mainstream science curricula. Um, this is a danger with any private school. It's, they, they want their own power. Uh, to teach whatever they like, um, and the kids are the ones who suffer. Anyway, back to you, Jean. Well, uh, we're back from overseas to the good news stories of the week, and Dale has got a lovely story about a physics teacher who taught for 50 years as a public school teacher. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. This is an article from The Age by Nicole Priesel. Chalk and cheers. After 55 years at the same school, Farid's passion for teaching still burns. Tears well in physics teachers Farid Anawati's eyes. Go in, enjoy the students, look after them like they're your own children, he says. If they were his own children, he'd have a lot of them. In his 55 years as a teacher at Geelong's Western Heights College, he has taught up to 5,500 students. There are some who stick in his heart, like the Year 9 student who was continually late to class, so Anawadi took him aside to ask why. He said, I have four brothers and sisters. I have to shower them, prepare their lunch, take them to school, and then come here, Anawadi said. The boy hadn't had breakfast, so Anawadi bought him some and continued to support him. It brings tears to my eyes, he says. Anawadi, 78, was one of 304 teachers and staff celebrated by the State Department of Education at a ceremony at the Pullman in East Melbourne on Sunday for working between 40 and 55 years in education in Victoria. He has witnessed many changes in his five decades. He was there for the merger of three schools, Bell Park High School, Geelong West Technical School and Bell Park Secondary College, into Western Heights College. He has seen the shift to students using computers, to the change to open plan classrooms, and then back again, the COVID-19 pandemic and online learning, and now the teacher shortage. Anawadi arrived in Australia from Egypt, where he had been an engineering lecturer in 1968. There's a few 
comments about that. Uh, Marcus says he loves reading positive stories from teachers and it makes a change because there is usually so much teacher bashing in the press. Read History First says, thank you, sir, for your compassion leading to priceless wisdom. How lucky were those kids? And Elwood says, I fear with the current teacher shortage, hours, workload and pay, there won't be many more teachers that do 40 plus years in the classroom. And I don't blame the teachers of today one bit. But we do congratulate Farid Anawadi for all of his good work over these last 55 years in the teaching workforce. Congratulations. And now our final good news story with Sorrel, our great state school. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's great state school of the week is. Gisborne Secondary College. Established in 1981, Gisborne Secondary College provides a safe and stimulating learning environment for over 1,200 students in the Macedon Ranges. They have an established reputation as an outstanding college in the quality of their wellbeing programs and the range of subjects and pathways available for their students. The strength of their current enrolments means that their learning programs will continue to expand over the next five years. Year seven and eight, their students work in purpose-built learning centres with a core curriculum that includes English, maths, languages, humanities and visual arts. Their learning centres provide exemplary transition support and students working in the learning centres have the opportunity to develop strong and enduring relationships with their teachers and with each other. The parents of their school speak at length about how connected their children feel in these learning centres and how effective the family college communication is. Their Year 9 curriculum is unique in offering the RAID program, an acronym for their values of respect, achievement, innovation and diversity, which engages students one day per fortnight in a range of positive, diverse and stimulating activities aimed at their specific social and cognitive developmental level. As students progress into years 10, 11 and 12, their college offers a comprehensive range of learning experiences to meet individual needs and pathways. There are over 50 different VCE courses on offer, as well as VCE, VM and VET programs. Many of their year 10 students select VCE, VCE, VM or vocational education training subjects to begin their qualifications journey. Wow, that's fantastic. That sounds like they have so much on offer. I'm going to throw some figures at you now from the ACARA My School website about Gisborne Secondary College. So as I said before, um, they have around 1,200 students. It's uh, 1,115 currently. Um, Their ICSIA value is just above average at 1,013. 12% of their students have parents that earn an income in the upper quartile, the the top quartile. 24% of their students have parents that earn an income in the second highest quartile. 
34% of their students have parents that earn an income in the second lowest quartile, and 29% of their students have parents that earn an income in the lowest quartile. So it really is a school that is representative of both advantage and disadvantaged students and of the Australian community. There is uh, 3% of students that speak a language other than English, and 3% of their students are Indigenous. Some of their finances, the recurrent grants from the Australian government, they get 3.5 million. From the Victorian government, 13.8 million. From fees and parental contributions, 575,000. From other private contributions, 187,000. And per pupil, this is $15,605. Uh, capital grants, only 446000 over three years. Well, congratulations, Gisborne Secondary College. You sound like you have a fantastic public school. Well, that is it for today. Uh, we thank you for listening to our program and we hope that you'll be looking at your bank balances to keep 3CR and the DOGS program going in the next couple of weeks. But from Dale, our producer, and myself and Sol and Kim, it's bye for now. Ten years dead, I never.